0: This is God's word. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigayanoth. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The word of the Lord. Thank you, God. <clears throat> Let us pray. Father, you created us from nothing and you created us for everything. But we have to admit that even when you are life itself, we the living find it so hard to find you. So we go our own way and find that being far from the source, we become broken and scared people, hiding from each other, unable to give grace, unable to receive grace. Father who sent the Son, who sent the Holy Spirit. Bring us out of hiding today with a comforting spirit so that we may see you and hear from you today. Amen. If you were here the last time I preached, you might remember that I opened with a song from the 1980s by the one and only David Hasselhoff. (laughs) Well, this time we're going a little back, a little farther back, The 60s. Um, In 1966, the musical group The Fifth Element released a song that announced arrival of a new and glorious age. So hold on to your seats. (laughs) The song begins like this: When the moon is in the seventh house, and Jupiter aligns with Mars, then peace will guide the planets, and love will steer the stars. Anyone know what I'm talking about? <laughs> All right. Because <laughs> this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. <laughs> the song goes on Harmony and understanding, sympathy and trust abounding. Fal- no more falsehoods or derisions, golden living dreams of visions, mystic crystal revelation and the mind's true liberation. Aquarius, Aquarius, Aquarius. (laughs) Apart from being the subject of a honestly super funky song, the Age of Aquarius is actually an idea from astrology. But when the song came out in the 1960s, the real astrologers, the professionals, thought the lyrics were complete nonsense. It might have been a great song or whatever, but it wasn't real astrology. But that's pretty much where the consensus ends. When it came to the actual substance of the age of Aquarius, no two astrologers could agree. And in fact, they just contradicted themselves. Um, One astrologer thought the age of Aquarius was right now. Another thought it was centuries ago, and maybe it would be back in a millennium. One astrologer thought that the Age of Aquarius actually would be a time of peace and harmony, and another thought it would actually be a, war, or a time of war and strife among people. So, as you can imagine, you know, I was pretty excited at the beginning, but now I was completely disappointed to begin with mystical crystal revelations and just end up being super confused. <laughs> Most likely the reason why consensus is rare in astrology, and the reason why, honestly, some people don't take it seriously, is that it's very hard to understand the causal mechanism behind this idea. How exactly is it that the stars and planets, which are millions and billions of miles away from us, how do they directly affect our lives? How exactly do the positions of Jupiter and Mars cause, the age of Aquarius, whatever that may be, there's definitely a causal gap here that needs explanation, (laughs) because our common sense tells us that things can only be explained by direct causes, cause and effect, if this, then that. Of course, this is common sense, but we're not born knowing all of this. We have to learn these things over time, so... Um, you know, As we grow up, we see patterns, we learn from experience, and things that we don't learn directly from experience, we have parents and teachers to explain to us. And over time, a model begins to form of how the world works. And for the most part, I think we're lucky enough to find that the world works pretty well. It's no Age of Aquarius, but it's, it's okay, you know. And that's why when the world doesn't work, when it fails to work, then we really take notice. We learn that often we, we, do, we learn often when we work hard and apply our talents that it usually pays off in the end, but sometimes that just isn't so. Or even if it does, once you reach success and the good life, you find that it has its costs, that the change in personality and consumption has effects on your family, and neighborhoods, and <clears throat> environment. We learn that love is precious and that we are so lucky to have it and to find it. But sometimes love can be painful. Love can fade. Love can so easily turn to hate or apathy. You know, We learn that we need stable environments and that are important for flourishing, but sometimes things just fall apart. Despite our efforts, despite our good intentions, marriages fall apart, careers fall apart, our reputations, our bodies, our minds, our integrity. This is how the world works. But you already knew that. And really, maybe we're a little too worldly-wise for our own good. Because just as often as we take the good for granted, we often take the bad for granted. In our, in our over-informed, news-saturated age, it is too easy to read or hear a heartbreaking story on the news, enjoy your moment of pathos, and then just get on with your life. After all, what can I do? This is just how the world works. If this happens, then that will happen. It's just the way it is. And I understand that sometimes we need to be detached. But honestly, you can be detached to a fault to have a mindset where few things are important where few things are worth burdening yourself with and I wonder though how well will this serve you when tragedy and hardship eventually come your way and come to the people close to you will you have the resources to honestly deal with this new reality but aside from that To simply look at something and say, that's just the way it is. That kills the conversation. That cuts it short. You say that, what else is there to say? But what if this was actually the beginning of a conversation, an invitation to a conversation? Do we have the courage and imagination to look at the broken parts of life and not look away? But instead, to look at it honestly and ask the simplest, but also the hardest question, which is why, why. And once we answer that, once we ask that question, are we willing to go where that may lead? We only read um, parts of the third chapter of Habakkuk, but I want to quickly go through the whole book. It's three pages because I think the progression Habakkuk goes through, you know, from and beginning to the final prayer is important. So in the beginning Habakkuk asks or Habakkuk begins by asking God some pretty pointed questions. In chapter one, he asks, God, how long must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? In verse 4, he adds, "The law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails." <laughs> the long and complicated backstory of Habakkuk can be found in outside of the book and the rest of the Old Testament, in the books of Kings and Chronicles. But just to sum it up, what Habakkuk is referring to is are the growing problems in the Southern Kingdom of Judah which have been caused by corrupt rulers, mistreatment by foreign powers like the Assyrians and Egyptians, but probably most important of all, a kind of cultural amnesia of what it means to be the people of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And over the course of his life, Habakkuk and his fellow prophets have been forced to watch these things unfold. And so Habakkuk is brought to the point where he has to confront God and ask him, how did this happen? How how is it that you let this happen? Why is this happening? Well, well, God actually responds to Habakkuk, but the response is troubling. (laughs) In verse 5 of chapter 1, God says, look at the nations and watch, and be utterly amazed. I... I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. And for the next few verses, God describes the ruthlessness and efficiency of the Babylonian war machine. So God's response to Judah's problems is to raise up the Babylonians and cause more problems. That doesn't seem very helpful, God. <laughs> <laughs> Habakkuk needs to respond. So here's the second here's Habakkuk's second complaint. From verse twelve, he asks, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them, meaning the Babylonians, to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. But your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? In verse 17, He ends. Is he to keep on emptying his nest, net, destroying nations without mercy? What is Habakkuk doing here? Well, what he's doing is he is wrestling with God. He is confronting the tension that he is forced to feel when he considers the fact that God is good and God is just. And that he does not tolerate injustice. Yet, on the other hand, his country's situation is bad and it seems to be getting worse. The question of the week was this Is the world as it should be? If you answered no, then you are at least aware of this kind of tension between how the world. Is and how it should be, however, you conceive of the world as it should be. And if you're a Christian or if you believe in prayer, you might look at the world and its trouble and feel compelled to pray for it. But there are many kinds of prayer. Consider this. Um, For example, your prayer might be God, why is my neighborhood a mess? But is it possible that you're really asking, God, what should I do to fix my neighborhood? Or is it possible that you're asking, God, how do I get out of my neighborhood? How do I get out of this situation? I think our first instinct when we're confronted with this kind of tension is first to try and fix it. And if we can't fix it, then try to escape it. And I'm not saying that we should be passive in the face of a bad situation, but we need to distinguish this kind of thinking from what Habakkuk is doing, which is faithful wrestling with God. Because to simply eliminate the tension, again, that cuts the conversation short. When you eliminate the tension, there's nothing to talk about. It's fixed. What Habakkuk is doing is different. He's wrestling with God. He's opening up the conversation, and he's seeing where it leads. So after Habakkuk's second complaint, God has more words for him. I'm not going to read them, but he basically says, yes, Habakkuk, things will get worse, but they will get better someday. God tells him that Judah will be avenged. Babylon will be judged. Someday, but not yet. And, you know, <clears throat> those are books of the Bible. You We learn that the Babylonians do overtake Judah and exile its people to Babylon. That's what the book of Daniel is about. Um, a couple of years later, the temple is destroyed. And, you know, <clears throat> and actually this is the part when the Bible starts to get written down. A lot of the Bible gets written down because it's just... Anxiety of that temple not being there. But after some time, the Jews will return to their homeland. They will rebuild the temple and actually begin to set the scene for the New Testament. But Habakkuk's story pretty much ends here. I wish, you know, I'm just exploring this book. I wish I knew what happened to him, but we can't know. So in the book of Habakkuk, he starts a conversation with God. It is a difficult, troubling conversation. And nothing is really resolved, right? Yet Habakkuk finds grace. The words I chose for a text, I love these words. They're so beautiful. Um, Chapter 3, verse 2. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And then the part we skipped, verses 3 to 15, Habakkuk retells for his audience stories from the past, stories where God was a warrior who did not sit idly by, but instead fought for his people with a ferocity that tore apart the earth, the sky, and the sea and laid waste to his enemies. So we see here what begins with wrestling leads to two things, repentance and remembrance. Um, Repentance. When Habakkuk tells God, in wrath, remember mercy, he is recognizing that although Babylon will be judged, that in fact, Judah is being judged as well. The sins of his people, which includes Habakkuk himself, must be accounted for. And that's why it's important that when we start the conversation, we have to begin with wrestling, that we not cut the conversation short. Because if we are so passive in handling and facing the problems of the world, we too easily forget that we are also part of the problem. But when we really wrestle with the tension of a world marred by other people's sins, in contrast with the holiness of God, it is virtually impossible to escape our own culpability in this mess. And if we are honest with ourselves, we know that we must repent. So that's repentance. The second thing is remembrance. When Habakkuk tells stories about God from the past, he is calling his audience to remember that the present is not all there is. There is a past, and there will be a future. We may be part of neither, but it's true. It might be hard to relate, though, to the stories Habakkuk tells to his ancient Hebrew audience. We should still study them, but the reality is that we have our own stories, and God uses these stories and testimonies to strengthen faith, and even to create faith where there is none. I've been in City Life for about two years now, and I've had the opportunity to hear some of your stories, but not all of them. Um, So this is an invitation. If God has been traveling with you for many years, or very few years, or even if God has been absent in your life, we need to hear your story. We invite you to tell your story. Excuse me. But not only that, as Christians, Christians especially need to remember that we are but one small part of a story that is very, very, very old. In just a moment, I promise, I will be done preaching, (laughs) and we will move on to the communion table. And at the communion table, we will reenact a scene and recite words that have been spoken continuously, without interruption, in every language, in every place, by every kind of person for the last 2,000 years. And what we are doing here today has been done by people who have changed and continue to change the world because they are compelled through this thing that we do to carry forward the memory of that first story, the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ the story of the gospel. So as Christians, we do this in solidarity with them as well as the generations that will follow us. We do this to remember. So those are three things. Wrestle, repent, remember. There's one more thing. And I think that most of us in this room are at the point where You are ready to do at least one of these things. But only a blessed few, I believe, are prepared to do the last one, which is rejoice. After everything he's heard and everything he's experienced, and having to face a future that is uncertain, Habakkuk's conclusion is this. Chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. We've been talking about this idea of epic prayer this Lent. As far as I'm concerned, the whole book of Habakkuk is pretty epic. It's such a beautiful book. But this right here is the most epic part of all. That one little word, yet. That little word is incredibly hard to say. Though I may always be alone, and there are no children in my house, Though this pain in my heart will never end and this loss will never be made whole, yet. Though my failure cannot be redeemed and the broken pieces cannot be rejoined, yet. It is incredibly hard to find the faith to say that one little word. And that's okay. That's okay. But until you find yourself in that place, don't end the conversation and move on as if there's nothing to do, nothing to find. But instead, until then, we must wrestle with God and struggle with the confusing and disappointing realities of this world with prophetic speech, prophetic prayer, and service to others in acts of mercy. Until then, we must repent and turn away from sin and call others to do the same. Until then, we must remember and create stories that strengthen and inspire faith. And even if at the end of all this, we look around and see that the fig tree does not bud and there are no cattle in the stalls. This is not the end. There is a yet. The story of the Old Testament is a story of people like Habakkuk, his forefathers, his fellow prophets, and the generations and generations of his countrymen that came before and came after him. Um, and This is a relatively small group, but what they did is they started a conversation on behalf of the entire world, asking, God, why is the world like this? What must we do to be saved? Well, we live at the moment in history where we have finally seen God's answer to this question. This is seen in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The story of Habakkuk resembles another story that I know from the life of Jesus. Shortly before he was arrested, Jesus wanted to tell his disciples what life would be like after he was gone. So in the gospel according to John, Chapter 16, verse 16, he tells them, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Just as God told Habakkuk, I may be gone for a while, but I will be back. But when Jesus told his disciples this, they didn't really understand, you know, typical. So Jesus said it again, In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. Just as God told Habakkuk that the Babylonians would be victorious and they would revel in it, if only for the moment. But here's the yet Jesus told his disciples, Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. You will grieve, yet your grief will turn to joy. To get closer to the one who spoke these words, to speak with him, to see him face to face, and to join him in the renewal of all things. This is why we wrestle. This is why we repent and remember. And this is why someday we shall rejoice. Let's pray. Triune God, your ways are too mysterious. And by nature we run from what is mysterious and cling to what is safe but God you are the safety we seek you are the hope we are searching for but we lack faith so it's not as easy as it sounds God help us to grow in faith even as we wrestle with these mysteries continue to reveal yourself to us in spite of our lack of faith God, guide us to the place where grief becomes joy. Amen.